Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 36, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name again is Rick. I am, of course, the author of The God Who Fights For You and Spiritual Grit and the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible. And uh, a few years ago, uh, the book The Jesus-Centered Life, which is sort of the foundational book, the mother book, I guess we could call that, because it birthed this podcast. And today is the third episode in a new series we're calling The Beeline Practices, and if you've read The Jesus-Centered Life, you know that the back two-thirds of that book, the whole, that whole section of the book is called The Beeline Practices. It's It really comes from a phrase that uh, the great Victorian preacher C.H. Spurgeon used to describe how he, in his many thousands of sermons, started wherever he chose the text from, but always found his way to Jesus. He called that making a beeline to Jesus, and his fundamental belief is that no, no matter where you started in Scripture, it, it should always end up with Jesus, and he trained young pastors to uh, uh, think about their sermons in this same way, that that the whole of the Bible is really about Jesus, so if your, if your message doesn't have Jesus as the focus, then something's wrong, and... Uh, I just love that, and Spurgeon's influence was so widespread uh, during his time that he was at one time the most known person in the world, which uh, somehow deep inside in a historical way makes me super happy <laughs> that at one time a person who was pointing to Jesus in such a passionate way was the most known person in the world. So. Um, making a beeline to Jesus, uh, the, the, the beeline practices are simply an expression of that in our everyday life. And uh, there's 18 or 19 of them that I include as short chapters in the last part of the Jesus-centered life. And it's not a list of, of how-tos or do this. It's not a to-do list. It's not a try-harder-to-get-better list. It's simply... Um, I like to refer to it as the 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 different attractions on a playground. <laughs> you just choose the ones that you really like you like and enjoy and, and play on those. So that's how I picture the last part of that uh, that book. So uh, from now and through the end of the year, we'll be uh, in this series of the beeline practices, focusing on one each episode. And the the point is that as as more and more of these things become sort of second nature, as we get past the part where we're trying to learn how to ride the bike and it just comes naturally to us, the more of these habits or practices that become natural to us, what we discover is that we naturally uh, begin to orbit around Jesus more and more closely, and then things start to change in our life. Uh, transformation happens when your orbit gets tighter around Jesus, and that's what we're hoping for here. So in this episode... We're going to explore the beeline practice of, wait for it, paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. <laughs> so the title of the podcast is that, but that the title of the podcast came from this beeline practice in the Jesus-centered life. And it's next up in the book, and I thought it would be fascinating to kind of do a level set here about what this podcast is really all about. And it really is all about this habit in our life of paying ridiculous attention to Jesus, or you could also say um, it's it's uh, sort of extraordinary curiosity. That's another way of saying it, I guess. Not just normal, sort of indifferent curiosity, but a sort of invested curiosity, a ridiculous curiosity. So some people, of course, are naturally curious, but curiosity is something we can grow into. I know I have. I'm an extremely curious person. I was just having this conversation with my wife the other day, um, because we, we can be out on a walk, and I will hear uh, a couple talking in their driveway as we go past, and I will uh, be paying attention to what my wife's saying, but I also hear this other conversation in the driveway, and as we go past, I will say something like, this happened this last week. We had a horrible, horrible hailstorm in our neighborhood. We passed some neighbors who were talking about the damage to their house, 
And after we passed their house, I said to my wife, wow, did you hear them talking about the damage they had to their house and what happened there? Because that, you know, think about what happened to our, our basement flooded a little bit. So that, that's why I was talking to her about it. She said, no, I didn't even know there were people over there. <laughs> and, and she said, how do you do that? And I said, well, I, I think I am just hyper curious all the time. And so I am very, very aware of what's going on around me all the time. And it really comes from becoming more and more curious in an intentional way in my life, paying better attention to people and paying better attention to what's going on all around me. So yes, some people are born more curious, but um, all of us can learn to become more ridiculously invested, curious um, in our life. And one thing that's important about that is that curiosity, I think, is, is core to God's nature, and we are made in His image. So whether you think of yourself as a curious person or not, it is in you. And the more we yield ourselves to the Spirit of Jesus in us, the more our curiosity grows, because the, the more we yield ourselves to Jesus, the more we, we become like Him. And the more we become like Him, the more we start to exhibit His traits, and one of his traits is his hyper-curiosity. So to kick us off here, um, in 1987, the rock band uh, U2 released an album that is now iconic. It's called The Joshua Tree. And the song on that album that became a mega hit and established them as a major, major rock band, and still to this day they're considered one of the greatest rock bands of all time, this song sort of kicked it off for them. The song is called, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, and Rolling Stone magazine would later call this song that Bono, the leader of U2, wrote. They later call this song one of the greatest songs in popular music history. It's a song really about spiritual longing, and it asks questions that it doesn't really answer. Now, if you've, if you've listened to rock and roll music in the last 20 years, you have likely heard this song. It's a very distinctive sound to it. It's like people—at the time, it was like nothing anyone had ever heard from a rock band. It was just a different kind of rock anthem. But I thought I would skip through a few of the lyrics uh, of this song just to give you kind of a, a, a taste of what the song's about. I said it, it, it asks questions that it doesn't really answer, but it, it's essentially a song about longing. And uh, so here's some of the lyrics. I've climbed the highest mountains— I've run through the fields only to be with you, only to be with you. I've run and I've crawled and I've scaled these city walls only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Um, I've kissed honey lips. I felt the healing in the fingertips. It burned like fire, this burning desire. I've spoke with the tongue of angels and I've held the hand of a devil it was warm in the night, and I was cold as stone, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. In the last stanza, the last grouping of the song is, I believe in the kingdom come, then all the colors will bleed into one, they'll bleed into one, and yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds, and you loosed the chains. You carried the cross of my shame. You know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Uh, uh, some of you know and some of you don't know that three of the four members of U2 are followers of Jesus, and that band grew out of uh, a little Bible study that they were in together, and then they formed a band, and they invited their fourth member um, into the band, and he's still not a believer, which is hard to fathom <laughs> when uh, you're, you're in such close community with these three other guys, so we'll see what happens to him in, in, in the course of his trajectory in life, but he has been heavily influenced by the other three members of the band who are followers of Jesus, and Bono often wrote, uh, has written lyrics to their songs that are very much in the Jesus-following uh, genre, and uh, you can see it show up even in this iconic song. Uh, but here he's saying that he's experienced a lot in life that we say that we're looking for, longing for, or we say that will do it for us. Uh, so he, he says that he's experienced a great love, but it's still not filling the hole inside of him, and that he's, he's, uh, he's written great songs and even great poetry, and he's, after all, a rock and roll icon, even at this moment, and that still doesn't do it for him. And then he says uh, that uh, he alludes to 
his belief in Jesus and that Jesus has uh, broken his chains and he's carried the cross of his shame. Uh, and, he, and he asserts that he believes in all of this. And yet that doesn't do it for him either. And this was kind of controversial at the time as people are trying to make sense of these lyrics, especially uh, Christians are trying to make sense of, hey, is U2 a Christian band or what are they? We, tr- we tend to think in these black and white compartments, are they Christian or not? And um, it was hard for some Christians to think of Bono's lyrics as coming from a Christian because he seems to express doubt about whether um, following Jesus is really enough. But I think this song really speaks to the, the, the rawness of our own longings and the fact that sometimes um, uh, believing in Jesus and following Jesus doesn't seem to fill the hole in our soul for some reason. There's a high-profile uh, suicide of an associate pastor at a major, uh, well-known megachurch this last week, and this was an associate pastor who had talked a great deal about addressing more, in a more honest and in-the-light way, depression and thoughts of suicide, and he had actually started a ministry at this church relative to this, and then all of a sudden the shock that he took his own life. And one of the the last um, tweets that he posted on his Twitter account before this happened was basically saying that, yes, following Jesus, believing in Jesus um, is a great thing, but it doesn't always take away your sadness, doesn't always take away your depression, doesn't always take away your thoughts of suicide, but he has promised to walk with us through that darkness. And then that, that was literally the last tweet he posted before he took his own life. And so here he's, he's, he's expressing in an extreme way what I'm saying here, what Bono was saying in this song, that, that uh, I can em- embrace Jesus and love Jesus and follow Jesus, but it still doesn't answer all my questions inside. So it's a, it's a, it's a song that, uh, that you can really chew on, because it doesn't answer all of its questions. And, uh, it, and it raises a kind of a larger question, what are people really looking for in life, and why can't they find it? Why is it so hard to find? Even when we say we find it in Jesus, why is there still that place in us that longs for something more? So I I think it's a great general question to ask, um, what are people looking for? Why can't they find it? I want to suggest to you that uh, uh, focused, ridiculous curiosity is is one primary path to discovering what it is we're really looking for. So... We're going to explore today a couple of short parables that we've um, uh, dug into at other times on this podcast from a different angle. We're going to take a particular angle with these two parables today. They're from Matthew chapter 13. They're the two shortest parables that Jesus tells. In my Jesus-centered Bible, uh, the heading over these two parables is the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl. Um, I am sure you have heard these parables before. We're going to slow down and pay some ridiculous curiosity to these two little parables today as an exploration of uh, what a a Jesus-centered life can look like if we slow down and pay better attention to not only the stories Jesus told, but his heart itself, and all of life, actually. So, So here are the two parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl, starting in Matthew chapter 13, Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. So we're going to come back to these two short parables in just a bit, but first I'd like us to to slow way down and consider the way that these two parables, the way Jesus begins both of these two parables. Uh, He says, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. Now, this is what stopped me uh, in this last week. I was reading through this section of Matthew's gospel, and I came to these two very, very familiar parables. Uh, I love these two little parables, by the way. but I came to them in a spirit of curiosity, like I always do, and part of that means that I assume that I don't really understand them. So I came upon these parables, I made the assumption, 
do I really understand what's happening in here? And I slowed down and I realized, you know, I don't think I've really plumbed the depths of these two parables still, because that that way of beginning them, the kingdom of God is like, um, has always been a wrestle for me. Well, what is the kingdom of God? And what does it mean when Jesus says, it's like this? And I realized I didn't, I didn't really fully, uh, I think, understand the depths of what he was trying to say here. So I decided to slow down and um, focus with curiosity on these two little parables. And the first thing we have to answer is, well, what, is, what does it mean when he says the kingdom of God is like? We can't really embrace the meaning of these parables unless we first answer that question for ourselves and have some context for what we think Jesus meant by that. So here's a, like a working definition I think I'd like for us to have um, when we think about what the kingdom of God is like. Let's say when Jesus says that, he's really trying to describe the, the, how things work in a culture that has a king who sets standards and values for that culture. So if you think about, uh, let's think about a cliched kingdom, like a kingdom that uh, has a castle in the middle of it and walls around it and a moat. And inside those walls, the king rules. And that particular kingdom has a certain kind of culture. The people have certain traditions and values, and they, they, when you experience people in that kingdom, you experience them a certain way because they've been infected by the, the culture that they live in and the values that have been set by the king. And so uh, when you uh, take down the walls from that little image and say, well, let's say the kingdom of God is a community of people who orbit around a king, and that king creates culture amongst that community, even though there are no walls around it. Um, that's a way of, of thinking about what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of God is like. So what he's really saying is, in this culture, uh, a kingdom uh, whose king is God, um, in this culture, this is how things work. This is what we value. This is what's important in that culture. So let's use that as our sort of standard distinction for what, the, uh, what he means when he says the kingdom of God is like. He's giving us a representation of something that's true or distinct in his home culture. So that's important context and on-ramp into, um, into where we're going here. So um, in these stories, in these, let's go back to the two little parables again. Um, let me read them once more to, to return to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that man discovered and hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. So let's think about this. He's, he's saying, in, in the kingdom of God, um, uh, this is how things work. What's happening in these stories is true about the culture of my, of my home. So when we slow down and... and uh, uh, look at these two parables with some hyper-curiosity, the first thing we notice is that in both of these stories, there's treasure hiding in plain sight. So the two stories are slightly different. We'll get more into that in just a second, but there's treasure hiding in plain sight, and that means anyone can find the treasure, but in these two stories, only one person does find the treasure. So it's not like uh, incredibly hidden, or you have to follow... Uh, a, a complicated path or a set of clues, like in um, uh, like in that Nicolas Cage movie, National Treasure, where you have to find so many uh, obscure clues to find the treasure in the end. No, this one's hiding in plain sight, and anyone can find it. Um, but not everyone does. So why is that? Why aren't these treasures more easily found by anybody? Because they're right there. So... Um, the truth is, uh, and we can kind of infer in this, that we find things when we slow down and look for them with hyper-curiosity. In both stories, in one story, um, the man sort of accidentally happens upon the treasure, but the implication is that anyone could have uh, accidentally happened on the treasure. He actually is paying attention. He's not running through the field. He's 
slowed down in the field. In fact, if you go back to the lyrics of Bono's song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, um, he, uh, in, the, in the very first stanza, he says, I've climbed the highest mountains and I've run through the fields only to be with you. Well, maybe Bono's problem was he was running through the field. <laughs> maybe he needed to slow down in the field and he might have found the treasure he was looking for because this guy and this parable did. He slowed down enough to notice when he stumbled upon the treasure. You've probably noticed this before, that if you're in a hurry, you miss obvious things uh, because you're not uh, paying attention to your surroundings very much. Um, this is, by the way, I mentioned before uh, when my wife and I were on a walk and I overheard a couple on the driveway talking about damage to their house from this hailstorm. Um, this happens all the time with us. I am hyper aware of everything that's going on in our surroundings. Sometimes it drives my, my wife crazy because I'm talking with her and listening to her, and then all of a sudden I will introduce something in the conversation that comes from our surroundings, and she's like, what? <laughs> Where does that come from? It comes from slowing down and paying attention to your surroundings. And, and in both cases, in these two stories, the two men do that. They have slowed down, and they're looking with hyper-curiosity. The first one is accidental, and the second one, it's a merchant who's actually already looking for pearls that have great value, because he understands what has value and what doesn't. So he's he's able, because he's trained himself and paid attention to what is the difference between a, a very valuable pearl and one that's only marginally valuable, he knows what he's looking for. And when he finds one that other people have missed and knows, oh, this one's really worth a lot, then he sells everything he has to get that pearl. Uh, at Obviously, the inference is at a much reduced price because other people don't recognize how valuable that pearl is. He does because he's paying particular attention to the value of these pearls, and he knows what to look for. So in either case, you have to recognize treasure when you see it, and you have to have a desire for treasure in the first place, or at least a desire for a particular kind of treasure. So for instance, if you're, um, uh, you know, I have, in the past, I've had uh, atheist friends, and there was for a time uh, a young person in our group who was an avowed atheist. So I've had friendships with atheists, and one of the issues there is that atheists think they already have figured out who Jesus is and what this Christian life thing is all about, and they've already answered their question, and so they're not really looking for anything. They're not seeking for anything. And that's not true of all atheists, but some seem to put off the idea that they've already got all this figured out and they're really not that interested in the treasure you're trying to point them to. So you have to have uh, a desire for finding that treasure in the first place, or at least a particular kind of treasure. And the merchant is looking for a specific kind of treasure, and as I said, he's developed a, a taste for it. And he's, how does he develop that taste? Because he has uh, exercised his curiosity about what makes for a valuable pearl and what doesn't. So here's a little scenario for you to think about, if you to try to get into the shoes of these two people, these two guys in, the, in these two short parables. Let's just say that I've just lost my job. And now uh, my fam I and my family, we're desperate to figure out, well, what can we find that we can sell <laughs> to sort of bring us some income in the gap between when uh, I've lost my job and when I find a new job? We, uh, so we set out as a family to scour our house and figure out what is it that we think, what's the one thing that we could sell in our house that would bring enough income to sort of tide us over until I have a new job. And it has to be something that we would be willing to part with. And it also has to be something that other people would be willing to buy. Well, I gave this very scenario to our group the other Tuesday night. I broke them into little teams, and I set them loose in our house. And I said, um, each team is competing to find the, the thing in our house that's sort of hiding in plain sight that is of great value that could be sold to tide us over until I get a new job. And uh, you need to find what you think is the best possibility for doing that, and it can't be something that our family couldn't live without. Like, for instance, you can't sell one of my daughters. <laughs> and you can't sell our house itself because we want to keep our house. Um, you can't sell something that is vital to our, to our life. 
So that was their challenge. And I gave them about 10 minutes to wander around our house and see what they could find, including our in our basement. And then they had to write a short little ad for eBay that would be their selling point for uh, getting a customer to buy that thing. And then I had the groups come back, and there was uh, I think there were six or seven of them, six or seven of these teams of three. And they came back, and they presented their eBay ad for the thing that they'd found. And a couple of them I crossed off the list right away because I said, what you think you could sell that for, nobody's going to buy it for that. So let's just cross that off the list. Um, but then the remaining ones we talked through about what, well, what's the possibility of us actually getting the amount that you think we could get for that, and uh, ended up, um, in the end, we have a, 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 a mini grand piano in our uh, living room that my daughters have played for years, and two of the groups chose that as the thing to sell. And I had already told them, we're not going to sell something that we can't live without, So, and I get to be the determiner of whether I can live without that or not. And oh, this was a hard one. I thought, can we really do without this, our, our beloved piano? But if you think about it in terms of uh, either you're going to lose your house or you're going to sell your piano, well, that puts it in a different light. So one of the groups thought we could sell that piano for a lot of money. Another group thought we could sell it for a more reasonable amount. So in the end, uh, I chose the group that selected the piano for a really reasonable amount, and uh, they're the ones that won. But what I asked them then is, well, what did it feel like to do this? What did it feel like to be on the hunt for um, a, a, a treasure that's hiding in plain sight? Um, what are all the things that you would have to develop in yourself to get good at this, to, to actually find and sell the thing that would tide your family over? What would you have to develop in yourself to do this? And here are some of what they said. I thought it was very insightful. Um, uh, one group said you have to slow way down uh, because you're used to moving through a house and rec you don't really uh, recognize individual items in the house, and you're not thinking about them in terms of how much are they worth. So you have to slow down, pay better attention, they said. You have to be creative— so you have to think kind of outside of the box. You have to have an eye for value. I thought that was a profound insight. You have to know what you're looking for and know what is valuable. The couple of groups that I cut off the list didn't seem to know what was really valuable. One of them said they could sell my record collection. I have a collection of uh, LPs um, that's uh, underneath where our music station is in our family room, and... Um, They've, I've collected them over many, many years, and there's some, there are some rare records in there, but they counted them up. I have 79 of them in there, and they believed that I could sell those records for $2,400. <laughs> and I said, uh, I think you're sadly mistaken as to how much a record album is worth, so I had to cross them off the list. Well, the point was they didn't have an eye for what was valuable. They thought it was valuable, but they didn't really know what what the market was for that. So so you do have to have an eye for value. Here's some here's some other interesting words these groups used. You have to be kind of desperate to slow down and pay attention in this way. And that's true. The, this situation, hey, we really need the income to tide us over, put everyone in a desperate kind of place. You you think differently when you really really need to find that treasure, right? And you have to be persistent in it. You can't give up too quickly. You have to keep looking. And um, uh, kind of a variation of having an, an eye for value is you have to know what you're looking for, too. Um, again, those two groups that I cut out, um, one of those groups, by the way, found these two old sort of sepia-tinged photographs of my wife and I when we were in a, uh, a skit at our church, and they're ridiculous old photos— but they thought it would be fun to say that these are historical photos that someone would pay for. And I'm like, those are less than valuable. We would, we would have to pay somebody to take those out of our house. So you're, you're misinformed. You don't know what you're looking for. Um, so in order to find a real treasure, you do have to know what you're looking for. And here's an interesting one. You have to take advantage of the luck that you have in life. I thought that was fascinating. And it's true when you think about the first parable here, the guy stumbles across a, a treasure in a field, 
he happens to stumble across it. Well, something that he didn't plan happened to him, but in that moment, he recognizes what he's discovered. And I think that's very true. In the kingdom of God, you have to be aware when, quote-unquote, luck brings something into your life, you have to recognize that it's valuable. Otherwise, you'll just pass by, right? That, that, that uh, happenstance encounter won't mean anything because you won't recognize what it is. So they also said that uh, you, you can't be focused inwardly, you have to be focused outwardly, you have to be looking for something. You can't be trying to answer the question inside, you have to be looking out um, in a creative way to find what it is uh, that, that you could sell to tide you over. Uh, here's, a, here's an interesting phrase they used, you have to be greedy for treasure. It kind of ties to the desperation part of this. You have to be uh, really wanting to find it, and once you find it, because you understand its value, you want to get it. <laughs> and in the case of these two parables, or the, at least the, the, uh, the first parable, the man found the treasure, but he hid it again because he really, really wanted to get it, and he didn't want somebody to easily find it after him. Um, it doesn't mean that when we, for instance, in the kingdom of God, when we find Jesus, we hide him so other people can't find him too. It's really more an expression of the feeling that you have inside that you really want this thing. Um, I, I try to, I, I, I use an example of, this is embarrassing, but I this is actually what I do. When I, on rare occasions, go shopping for clothing, I always go to the clearance rack. I never buy anything that's full price, and I often don't even buy anything that's on sale. I look for things that I like on the clearance rack. And you can find some real treasures on the clearance rack, but often that treasure, there's only one of them. There's only one like that's in my size or in the color that I want. And so sometimes, don't tell anyone, what I do is I take that thing and I go rehang it somewhere where no one will find it while I'm figuring out if I really want to buy it. Because I don't want someone else to grab it while I'm trying to decide if I really want it or how valuable it is to me. So once I've decided if it's valuable enough, then I know where to go back and get it. Well, that's kind of like what this, this part of this, the, the second parable here, uh, the first parable here, where he finds it and he hides it again. Um, he's, he's determined how valuable it is, and he just needs to buy himself some time until he can buy that field, right? So that's how determined he is to get it. Um, uh, another group said you have to be kind of poor in spirit, in a sense, you have to be recognized that you have a need for this in the first place, and you have to, as we've mentioned uh, several times, think out of the box, think outside the box, uh, and that's how you come to understand what really could be valuable in the house that you may, may have overlooked. And finally, you have to be very observant. You have to be paying attention to to what's around you. So, as we uh, head back to these two t- parables, let's let's throw out a new question. What does Jesus then want us to know about how things work in his kingdom? And why does he want us to know it? Because that's really how uh, the, the path to unlock why he told these two parables. What does he want us to know about his kingdom, and why is it so important? Why does he want us to know that? So here's some possibilities that came out of our group the other night. I, I thought it was a fascinating discussion. Here's some possibilities for what Jesus is trying to spotlight in these parables, and why he's trying to spotlight it. So, so one is that when we, uh, we are chosen, I, I thought this was a fascinating thing. Um, in our group, uh, some people thought the parable meant, these parables meant that we are the treasure, and Jesus himself is the man stumbling across us in the field, or the merchant looking for the pearl of great price, that we are the treasure, and that when Jesus finds us, he gives up everything for us. And of course, that's, that's, uh, I, I've never thought about these parables that way, but think about it. Uh, Jesus ha- did find treasure, and the treasure is you and me. And what he agreed to do, what he willingly did, what he joyfully did, though it came at tremendous cost, was give up everything to gain us, to gain the treasure of us. So you could look at this parable, these parables that way. You could also look at it the more traditional way, that, uh, that 
uh, we are the ones searching for treasure, and Jesus is the treasure. And those that recognize his beauty and his value are the ones that sacrifice everything to get him, because they know that'll be worth it uh, intrinsically. But in the first interpretation of these parables, you could say that we're chosen, that, that Jesus has seen great value in us and has chosen us. So I thought that was fascinating, that one possibility that Jesus is trying to show us that is that in the kingdom of God, we're seen as treasures, that Satan sees us as disgusting and non-entities. He doesn't give a thought to us. But in the kingdom of God, we are treasures. We are the apple of his eye. Um, he knows the number of hairs on our head. Um, we are more valuable than an earth full of sparrows. Uh, we, we are the treasure, and we have been found and chosen by the one looking for treasure. Um, so chosen is one way to, to kind of translate what Jesus is trying to bring across. Um, another way is that we hide what we find, as I just mentioned, because we're determined to get it. <laughs> and then in the kingdom of God, those who are determined to find the treasure find it. Uh, that's how things work. That, uh, and it makes sense because Jesus is not, he's not going to force himself on us in, in this relationship that he's, uh, that he's established with us. He's not going to force intimacy. He's only going to invite it. And those that uh, begin to taste the, the goodness of his heart and uh, pursue it with a determination end up finding the treasure they're really looking for. Um, so the, the, another way of interpreting what, what Jesus uh, means um, about these parables and comparing them to how things work in the kingdom of God is that our need, our, our, poor, our poorness in spirit or our desperation, produces in us a sort of pursuit mentality, or you could call it a, a curiosity mentality on steroids, that because we're in touch with our need, because we're in touch with the poverty inside or the brokenness inside that we have, it produces in us a pursuit of treasure in our lives. It makes us curious. Uh, it draws us to Jesus because we know we need the treasure. We, we know that um, without it, we're nothing. Um, without it, we're not going to make it. So this need in us produces this pursuit mentality. And finally, I thought this was the most profound, and I think it, it's central to these two parables. It's all about the value. Um, so if we don't understand what is valuable, then we won't be awake and alert when we stumble upon it, and we won't pursue it. Um, the, here's, here's sort of the kicker. Uh, this is, I think, the, the, the important thing that was a light bulb moment for me in re-embracing these two parables. In life, we find what we're looking for, and in the kingdom of God, that's true. That's how things work. Uh, if you intend in your life to look for financial success and gain it at, by all means possible, then you'll, you may find it. But what you'll find in the end is how empty it is. If that's what you value, you might get it, but, the, but you'll discover that the value is hollow. So be careful what you're looking for, because you might get it. Um, that goes back to determining what really is valuable and what isn't valuable. And if what you've determined really is valuable, and that's the thing you're looking for, well, you might find it. Um, especially if you're desperate for it. So it's so important to develop our taste for real treasure. You know, we say uh, curiosity killed the cat, but in our case, curiosity rescues the cat, <laughs> meaning our curiosity, our persistent, ridiculous curiosity, is what in the end brings us into close orbit with Jesus where we can drink his living water and where we can eat his body and drink his blood and find life. That means it's super important to consider what we're looking for in life and how we're looking for it. So um, how determined are we to find what we're looking for in life? In, in general, if you could probably condense um, in general what we're looking for in life to things like we're looking for happiness or 
satisfaction or success or close relationships. Um, and the, if those things are the end game for us, well, will we, will we really discover that in those things um, is, is a true treasure? Sometimes I think uh, in the era of the church when there was so much talk about the family being the treasure, like, like uh, family closeness became the treasure we were all seeking at one point. Um, I remember thinking toward the tail end of that movement <clears throat> that it was going to be exposed as hollow in the end, because even a close family doesn't really fill the hole in our soul. We think it should, but even that isn't really the answer. We'd still have to say with Bono, we haven't found what we're looking for, even when we get that. There's only one real treasure, and I think both of these parables are trying to point to that, that there's one treasure that's found by a person, and that treasure really does satisfy. It really does fill the hole inside. So um, if we, in life, find what we're looking for, well, what, what do we find when we slow down and fuel our curiosity um, and try to understand what a treasure Jesus is. If, if part of the solution to this is learning to develop an eye for value, an eye for treasure, well, what do we find when we slow down and pay attention to, to Jesus? So in the Jesus-centered life, um, in the chapter on, on this beeline practice, paying ridiculous attention to Jesus, I took the Gospel of Matthew, and I just did a slow walk through it, looking for the beauty in Jesus. Um, what, what is Jesus really like? And I just slowed down, and then every time I, I, I thought I was tasting and experiencing something about him, what he values, um, what he likes and doesn't like, um, what, is, what his heart longs for, what his heart's drawn for, I just stopped and scribbled down a note, and then I translated it into this chapter in the Jesus-Centered Life. So let me run through some of those things that I scribbled down as I took a slow walk through the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus spent more time praying than speaking. His dependent relationship with his Father fueled everything he said and did. He honored the intimacy of his one-on-one -on -one relationship with his Father above his teaching, above the ministry of his healing— uh, I'm sorry, above the ministry of healing and above his miracle working. Jesus enjoyed spending time with self-confessed sinners. They were some of his best friends on earth. He liked hanging out with people who were not trying to spin him. They were simply honest about who they really were with all their flaws. Jesus said we'd know we were starting to make an impact when people started insulting, persecuting, and defaming us because of him. He is not moved or motivated by unfair critique or misplaced abuse. It's impossible to force Jesus to capitulate on the truth. He can't be pressured into compromising his integrity. Well, Jesus hated it when people hid behind religious rule-keeping. His goal is to lead us back into a Garden of Eden intimacy in our relationship with him, and formulaic approaches to relationship are disgusting to him. Jesus told his followers to plunge themselves into the mainstream culture like a lamp in a dark room or salt added to a recipe. He is not afraid of a culture dominated by sin. In fact, the darkness of the culture only serves to accentuate the impact of his light. Jesus hated it when people prayed or served or sacrificed to boost their profiles or feed their egos. He honored secret acts because they revealed a desire for an open honest relationship with God. Jesus said the richest people were those who'd banked a lifetime of actions that honored God. He bluntly told his followers they could not be motivated by love of money and love of God at the same time. Jesus told us to ignore people who talk big but don't act big, and to honor those who talk small but act big. Jesus spent a great deal of time asserting his authority over demonic spirits and destroying the works of the devil— he was continuously releasing people from the captivity of demonic oppression and possession. Jesus loved celebrations and enjoyed himself so much that the religious rule keepers accused him of public drunkenness. And it goes on. So this, again, are these uh, bulleted descriptions that I discovered when I slowed down in the Gospel of Matthew and tried to taste and experience the treasure of Jesus 
it's really almost describing the facets on a diamond. When you take a magnifying glass and you start to really examine what makes that diamond beautiful, that's what this is. You simply slow down and take a slow walk through, um, activate your ridiculous curiosity, and pay attention to what it is you're seeing in who he is. So to close off here, what will fuel and strengthen this kind of curiosity toward Jesus in our life? What will make us more able to pay ridiculous attention to him? Well, a couple pages later in this same chapter on this beeline practice of paying ridiculous attention to Jesus, the very end, I give um, five little ways that I think can become habits in our life that will strengthen our curiosity, make it the kind of curiosity that rescues us in the end. The first is uh, that we take a sort of vacation perspective about Jesus and treat everything we read about him as if it's the first time we've ever experienced it. Now, this vacation perspective comes from uh, uh, an interesting uh, uh, interview I heard on NPR a while back. It was with Ellen Langer, who's a Harvard Harvard psychologist. She authored the book Mindfulness, and mindfulness is a term that I just despised for a long time, and then I listened to this interview, and I I think I caught the essence of what it's really all about, and I did a 180. So here's what Ellen Langer said about what mindfulness really is. She says, when you're being mindful, you're simply noticing new things. Mindfulness is what you're doing when you're at leisure. For example, if you're on vacation, you're looking for new things. It's enjoyable rather than taxing. It's mostly energy-begetting, not energy-consuming. So what this vacation perspective I'm talking about here is you simply treat everything you read about Jesus as if it's the first time you've ever experienced it. I've already mentioned what the reason we're doing this episode today, uh, based around these two short parables, is that even though I've read these parables thousands of times, and I've delved into them and dug into them many times over, when I came to them, I treated these two parables as if I was on vacation. (laughs) What new thing can I discover about these two parables? And what is it that I haven't yet discovered about them? When you treat it with that kind of perspective, the, the meaning of the parables gets unlocked. Here's a second way. When we read or listen to understand Jesus' heart, rather than copying down his recipes. So the, the, the name of our Tuesday night group is Pursuing the Heart, Not the Recipes. And it came from this, this one little practice I'm telling you about right now, that we simply intend to understand the heart of Jesus, rather than always trying to translate what he's saying into some kind of practical application in our life, or a formula for how we do things. That our first and primary concern is, what kind of heart would value that? And what kind of heart would tell us to do that? What is his heart like? So when we do that, we draw near to him. We get a taste of his heart. A third way is to ask far more why questions about him than we typically ask. And that means whenever you run across something Jesus says or does, that you stop and ask, why did he do that? Why did he say that? What's the point behind it? And you keep asking why until you get to the bottom of his heart. And you have to ask it more than once, because mostly when we answer why questions, we're answering with what answers. So you could ask, well, why did Jesus tell these two parables? And your answer could be, after asking why over and over again, that he wants us to learn to value the treasure in his heart. And if we're going to value the treasure in in his heart, we're going to have to slow down and pay better attention to it. That's why he's told these two parables. And what does that say about his heart? Well, he wants more than a surface relationship with us. He wants intimacy. So ask far more why questions about him than we typically ask. Number four, never assume we already know what's going on when Jesus is engaging the crowds or his disciples or an individual. Instead, we come to everything with a child's curiosity. So this is uh, similar to taking a vacation perspective on things. It's we come to these stories about Jesus with the curiosity of a child. We don't assume we already know who he is or what this means, and we let Jesus teach us about who he is instead of bringing our predetermined assumptions about him into it first. We simply let what he's done or said 
teach us about who He is, and we do that like a little child. And the last thing is that we recognize again that beauty is always in the details, so we're always looking for and chewing on the details that surround Jesus' behavior, and we let those details lead us to a deeper understanding of Him. I think this is so important. When we slow down in the field, we're not running through the field like Bono did, when we slow down in the field, we start to notice the details around us. How do you think that guy spied the treasure hiding in plain sight when so many had already missed it? It's because he probably noticed a little corner sticking out somewhere, a little glint from the sunlight that attracted his attention, and because he was paying attention to the details, he stopped, went, and pursued until he discovered, oh, there's a treasure here, and he hid it again. Probably wasn't that hard to hide it again because so many had already missed it. The point is, when you're paying attention to details and follow those details down to their source, you discover the heart of Jesus. And when we're paying attention to His details, we often discover His transcendent beauty. So these are five simple, you could call them habits, they're really more like lenses, they're really more like ways of thinking about life, ways of approaching life, a way that we lean in life, these five things. And again, you can find these, all of this that we've just talked about in uh, the chapter of the Jesus-Centered Life under the Beeline practice called Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. And those five agreements that I just mentioned are from page 129 from the Jesus-Centered Life. So if you already own the book and you want to go get a refresher and turn over to that, just turn to page 129 and you'll see those five different life habits that will lead you into closer orbit around Him. So that is what it looks like to pay ridiculous attention to Jesus. And in the context of what we're talking about today, maybe another way of thinking about it is ridiculous curiosity and developing that muscle in your life where you become a hyper-curious person about Jesus, about His kingdom, and about all of His creation, which includes other people. There you have it, gang. So thanks for listening today. Remember, you can check out the Jesus-Centered Bible to discover the Jesus who we're all orbiting around. That Bible was constructed with special features to, on purpose, intentionally, wherever you're reading in Scripture, draw you into this closer orbit around Jesus. So check out the Jesus-Centered Bible if you haven't already, and of course, if you haven't read The Jesus-Centered Life, be a perfect time to, to get a copy of that as we're moving through the Beeline practices from now to the end of the year. So there'll be a link on our podcast page for both of those things. You just go to PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com and you look for Season 4, Episode 36, and you'll find the links that you're looking for right there. Again, the podcast name is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree, and you could subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you again next week. 